this morning we're, we're continuing with this series um, that we've been on, moving through Exodus. And the book of Exodus has a gospel pattern. That's something we've been talking about consistently. And so I'll, I'll lay that out again for you before we come to our passage this morning. And so if we look uh, at the book of Exodus, we see that God has sent a deliverer. It was Moses to lead his people from slavery out into freedom. And as he does that, he leads the people through the waters of the sea and then up to a high mountain where God gives the law. And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And that wilderness wandering um, eventually leads them uh, by God's presence and power to the Jordan River, which they cross over. And pass into the land of promise. I'll get to see the Jordan River this week. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, maybe, maybe jump in. I don't know. We'll see. Um, so uh, that pattern that we see in Exodus is kind of setting us up to understand more fully what Jesus has come to do when he arrives. Because Jesus is the deliverer sent by God leading his people from slavery to sin and death into freedom. And as that happens, he leads us through the waters of baptism. And then, just as the pattern of worship unfolds, we come now to uh, the time of the Word and of God's teaching. Um, we sing about the perfect ten, those ten commandments that God gave atop the mountain. Our lives, too, are kind of like that wilderness wandering um, where we receive the manna at the table where God sends bread from heaven to sustain us on our journey and leads us step by step in faith till eventually, um, like those that we love who have gone before us, cross over Jordan into the land of promise. So there's a gospel pattern to the book of Exodus. And as we understand Exodus more fully, we can understand Christ more fully. And so all that brings us uh, today um, to Exodus chapter 7. Now Moses has been something of a template for us as we seek to live our Christian lives. And so we've noticed that um, a couple weeks ago, God had called Moses to go to Pharaoh. And then he equipped him with some gifts. Do you remember this? He gave him gifts. The first was a staff that turned into a snake, and then back again. The next was a leprous hand that when he pulled it out would become clean. And then there was a bucket of Nile water that turned to blood. He gave him gifts for this confrontation with Pharaoh. And then, when he had that first conversation, he said, God has called the people to do what? Go into the wilderness and worship. That was the singular reason God gave for bringing the people out. Because in worship is found perfect freedom. And so now, uh, Moses has done this. Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to let you do this. I'm going to heap burdens upon you. The people have grumbled and complained about the extra burdens and, well, maybe God shouldn't have tried to do this after all. Moses has prayed to God, why'd you even send me if this was going to happen? So God meets with Moses, sends him back, and Exodus chapter 7 is about uh, what God is sending Moses now to do. And we're going to read this first section, but this morning we're going to cover all ten plagues. All right, so listen carefully and listen well to Exodus chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like 
God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up all their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, our great deliverer and our rescuer. You who come to lead us to freedom. You who give us your word. Teach us now, we pray, in the power of your spirit that we might be drawn closer to you and be filled with you so that we might know your love, forgiveness, and freedom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So that was a, a really strange way to begin, wasn't it? For God to say to Moses, See, Moses, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. That's a strange thing for him to say. And yet the backdrop of all of this, the whole Exodus story, remember, is divine warfare. A confrontation between the true God of Israel and the false gods of Egypt. And so can you picture this? Moses and Aaron striding into Pharaoh's courts. Pharaoh sitting upon his throne understood by the people to be an incarnation of sorts of their God, with his court magicians beside him, as they're described in Exodus, or their liturgical helpers, or their, their priests, the ones who would lead them uh, in the observance of their cultic ritual. You've got Pharaoh and his liturgists. You've got Pharaoh and his priests. You've got Pharaoh emblematic of the Egyptian gods, and then you have his helpers. And then, of course, you have Moses, the one to whom 
Uh, God has given the gift of appearing like God to Pharaoh. And Aaron stands with him. It's a confrontation that's happening, isn't it? Any guys watch The Voice? It's a, you know, just a singing competition. Right, what channel is that on? Yeah, yeah, NBC, Channel 6. There we go. Yep, so the second round or third round or whatever, they call it the knockout round, right? And they, they make like a boxing ring, and the two singers come in and then like sing it out between them to see who's going to emerge victorious. This, I mean, this is what this scene looks like. You've got the boxing ring, and you've got Moses and Aaron, you've got Pharaoh and his priests, and they have come together in this moment for a competition of sorts to see who the great God is, to see who is most powerful, to see who is true. And so they face off one with another. Um, the point of all this, God says, is for the Egyptians to come to know that He is the Lord. And so begins the series that is almost liturgical in the way it plays out. There's a, there's a rhythm and a pattern that seems to develop between Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, and his helpers. There's a common um, uh, sequence of events. So this is how it typically happens. Moses and Aaron come in. And they say, The Lord says, Let my people go, that they may go and hold a, a feast to me, that they may go and worship me outside of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, No, I'm not going to do that. And then Moses and Aaron say, well, then here's the consequence. Here's the, the plague that will befall you and the nation. And the plague comes and suffering is endured. And then Pharaoh relents. and He says, look, just take this away and I will then let you go. And so Moses and Aaron, they come and they say, okay, the Lord will take the plague away. And then Pharaoh either hardens his own heart in the beginning or eventually his own heart is hardened by the Lord, and he says, no, I'm not going to let you go. And this plays out over and over, this sequence of events. And there's some nuance, there's some difference in the encounters, but largely that is the pattern in the sequence. And so what we're going to do, we're going to go through the ten plagues. But first, um, I want you to note what happened in our passage. It's sort of set aside from the plagues, but it's the first sign and wonder that the Lord commanded uh, Moses to carry out in Pharaoh's court. You heard it. Come in. Moses, he says, let my people go. And he says, no, you haven't given me any reason to believe God's, your God is with you. Perform a miracle. So he takes his staff and he casts it on the ground, turns into a serpent. Pharaoh turns. Here's, you know, here's the boxing ring. says, okay, guys, let's see what you got. And they too throw staffs down and by Dark arts, as it's described, so too do their staffs turn into serpents. But then, what happens? Moses and Aaron's staff come and gobble up the others. I want you to hold that in your mind, because we're going to come back to that after this sequence of plagues. Uh, first, let's see if we can remember them. Okay. <laughs> so the first plague, the Nile River turns to blood. And then, after this, the next plague that is visited upon Egypt is that frogs emerge from the muck and the mud and the mire and cover the whole land. 
And then gnats and flies begin to swarm and bother and cover the people. And then, after the gnats come, all the livestock in Egypt dies that belongs to the Egyptian. Those that belong to the Israelites are not killed. And then human beings are affected. Um, The Egyptians' bodies are covered with boils that ooze and ache. And then, after this, you have hail that falls and crushes crops. And then locusts come and swarm. And then after the locust, darkness falls over the whole land. And finally, the tenth plague, the firstborn of the Egyptians die. It's a sequence of plagues that sound a little bit like those odd gifts that God gave to Moses, isn't it? You remember we talked about this? How if you were, you know, if God came to you and said, well, I'm going to send you the most powerful person in the world that we know about, and you're going to lead all the slave people there into freedom by going in and telling them God's on your side, I'm going to give you a few gifts. I mean, like being indestructible seems helpful or, you know, um, you know, super strength or something like this, but that's not what God gives Moses, is it? He gives him a, a stick that turns into a snake and back again. He gives him a hand that turns leprous and then is made clean. He gives him a bucket of water that when you pour it out, turns to blood. What kinds of gifts are these? And we realized in that moment that these gifts weren't meant to be tools that would vanquish Pharaoh's armies and chariots and spearmen. They were gifts, signs that were meant to convey that God was powerful, that God was about to take Pharaoh, who had the serpent headdress upon his head, by the tail, and wield him as a tool leading his people into freedom. That he was going to take his broken down people uh, that had been enslaved. Israel, which looked like a leprous hand. Israel, which was in pain. Israel, which was falling apart. And heal it. Heal his nation and people and lead them to freedom. He is about to reveal the culture of death that underlied the culture of Egypt represented by the Nile water which turns to blood, the Nile water which had for so long been receiving the infant male children of the Israelites as they were drowned by their oppressors. God was saying, I'm about to reveal some stuff. And I'm about to conquer. And I'm about to set free my people whom I love. And so when we make our way to the plagues, these signs which at first blush seem, well, that seems helpful for the kids, Sunday school class, but we're older and more mature folks now. We, that, that seems a bit kid-like, maybe. What do we do with this story as adults? Well, it's the same thing that's happening over again. Did you hear why God was sending these plagues, these miracles and signs and wonders? It was so that the people of Egypt would know that He is the Lord. How can they know that He is the Lord? God is going to come and fairly systematically overcome the gods that the people of Egypt worship. As we go through the plagues, we can see that happening and unfolding. God is coming to them in their culture and moment and religious practice and demonstrating His superiority over all the false gods that they would bow before uh, in relation to these various spheres of life. 
Does that make sense? And so now we say, okay, well, this isn't kid stuff. This is like cosmic stuff. This is God showing them who he is in all of his power so that they can come to know that he's the Lord. So let's look at the plagues one more time. Let's revisit them um, and just think about some of the nuance and then, and then maybe we can connect them to some of the gods that were associated with these areas of life. So first, the Nile River, which turns to blood. Now, we, we got the hint where God is showing us that those waters have been bloodied by Hebrew male children for some, some time now. But we also have recognized that the Nile River floods uh, every year. And so the, the Nile Delta has become this fertile region in the midst of North Africa where crops grow, uh, which is green and produces plenty, and a, an entire civilization can emerge in the ancient world. That, I mean, y'all seen the pyramids. It was a pretty advanced place, pretty sophisticated place. Um, I mean, I'm sure they were a lot better at ge geometry than I was looking at the pyramids, right? So this whole civilization grows up at root because the Nile River floods every year and allows crops to grow um, and to be harvested. But now the Nile River water has turned to blood and the fish in it die. And instead of being a source of life, it's revealed that the gods associated with it bring death. That's the first plague. The next plague, what? The frogs, which emerge from the muck and the mud and the mire. It's like you got the sea, which represents chaos to any ancient civilization or, or the, the water. And then you have these frogs that just come climbing up out of the ooze. And it says, the scriptures say that, that they were absolutely everywhere. They covered the land. They made their way into the houses of the Egyptians. They climbed into the bowls where they made and ate their food. They were absolutely everywhere. These mud-covered frogs are sort of a picture of sin in a way, which covers everything and is transmissible and gets everywhere. It's like a pandemic. I mean, it's a plague, right? You communicate these things. And so too has the Egyptians' lives, as they have worshipped false gods and idols and so on, been bent and turned away and distorted from the one who is true. And so too has everything in their lives been touched and in some way contaminated by this. So you've got the blood, you've got the frogs. Slowly, you can see how this is sort of, there's this emergence happening. So you go from the waters to the mud, and then out of the mud hatch gnats and flies, which come and cover, again, everything, and begin to oppress and contaminate uh, the livestock and the people. Getting in eyes and ears and noses and mouths and you know if you were to walk through Egypt at this point it would be like the guy who rides up 181 on his motorcycle smiling and gets you know gets all the bugs in his teeth you know you know what I mean yeah that's what Egypt looked like during this period flies and bugs and they just cover everything the pattern continues okay Pharaoh relents okay let the people go the plague disappears nope changed my mind my heart's been made hard either by Pharaoh's choice or eventually the Lord's. So you've got the Nile. You've got frogs, gnats, flies. Then the livestock in Israel, excuse me, in Egypt, die. Not the 
livestock which belong to the Israelites. There's a distinction the Lord makes. Those livestock who belong to the Egyptians. And then the people themselves, the Egyptian people, are covered with boils and they ache and they hurt. And the pattern continues. After this, so you see the emergence happening. You've come from the sea to the mud. And that's hatched and come around all the people and the animals who inhabit the earth. And then there's this move to the sky. And so hail falls and destroys crops and people. It says hail felt like it had never fallen in Egypt before. And then after the hail, a swarm of locusts came, darkening the sky, eating whatever was left of the crops after the hail. And then after the locusts, darkness fell. The sun did not shine. And then eventually that tenth plague, the firstborn of the Egyptians, die. So you can see there's some nuance, there's some spiritual connection here, but, but perhaps it would be helpful to know that there was a god of the sea or of water, Osiris. It was the, you might have even heard that name. You're not probably an, an expert in the Egyptian pantheon, right? But have you heard that name, Osiris? Somewhat familiar. Osiris was this god that was worshipped, god of the water, of the sea. And this god was revealed to be powerless against the God of Israel, right? Could not keep the water from being turned from a source of life to revealing the source of death. Um, you've got um, Geb, which was the, the God of, of the land, who could not contain the frogs which emerged from the earth and covered everything. You've got uh, Hathor, which was a God depicted typically as a cow. And the livestock die, including the cows. And so in the people can see the death of Hathor in a sense. You've got Horus, which was a god of the sky and of the heavens, pictured often as a falcon in their writings and depictions. God of the sky and of the air. Couldn't keep the hail from falling. Couldn't keep the locusts from swarming. Or the gnats and the flies from sticking in teeth. He couldn't do this. Um, there's Newt, who was like a goddess of the sky um, who in one sense swallowed up the sun at the end of the day and it became dark, but then gave birth to the sun yet again in the morning. And then there's the god Ra, or then a compilation of them, Amon-Ra, who is the god of the sun, sort of the highest deity for them. Who like a light switch was flipped off so that darkness covered the land powerless against the God of Israel. God did all these things so that the people of Egypt would know that He was the Lord. You see, it's not just a kid's story. God is communicating to this people in exactly the place and culture and time and religious experience that they walk day in and day out. That's what's happening. And all of that is sort of contained within that first sign that Moses and Aaron demonstrate when they throw down the staff and it turns into a serpent and swallows all the serpents um, that, the, it, that Pharaoh's uh, court magicians produced and then was taken up again in Aaron's hand. God was overcoming the serpent who was Pharaoh. 
and demonstrating his power over them. So what does this mean for us, for you? I I would like for you to see and to know that everything we see happening here in this confrontation uh, in Egypt, this victory that Yahweh um, uh, exhibits over false gods or lesser ones, points to and is contained within Christ's incarnation for us. So, So Christ's coming to be with us is, again, in its own way, it's a deliverance story, but it's also a confrontation with the false gods. And Christ, who's the right hand of God, becomes incarnate for our sakes and descends from the highest place, the spiritual realm, and comes and joins us here on the land and walks among us even as one of us, having a body like ours. And as he lives among us, our great deliverer, he reveals that he has power over the spirits of the air. As Paul describes um, powers and principalities, spiritual realities or forces that the Egyptians would have called gods. Um, Jesus exhibits his control and power over them. Uh, The God who met Moses at the burning bush is now here with us. And he speaks a word and demons are cast out. I mean, all the stories in the Gospels where that happens. Jesus is the one who enters into the creation that He's made and reveals He's master of it. Because He's the one who walks upon the water. He's the one who speaks a word. And the storm and the wind and the waves cease and grow peaceful. He is the one who conquers the serpent, who has been our adversary from the beginning, upon the hardened wood of the cross, and so enters not just into our sphere in this life, but descends even into the underworld, into the place of death, into Sheol, and conquers even the one who appears to be master of that place. Jesus has come as a liberator, as a deliverer, who enters through all things, all, each one of those spheres that we see sort of emerging out of these plagues, the water, the land, the muck, the sin, the, uh, the land, the livestock, the people, the spirits of the air, Christ enters into each one of those areas and sets us free, exhibiting that he, in fact, is the one who is uh, victorious. If you can see that much, then I want you to think about this question. We've got sort of three areas delineated here where the gods of Egypt resided. We see three spheres into which Christ enters. The lower regions or chaos of the water, the land, the air. We've spoken before about how human beings are a microcosm of the creation. When we say the Nicene Creed, we confess God to be the creator of all things, visible and invisible. The way the comma falls, sometimes it seems like you're talking about God as visible or invisible, but it's actually the creation, visible and invisible. So material things and also spiritual realities. We might say human beings with bodies or the angelic host who are spirits without them. So we have these various areas of the creation delineated, and human beings are a microcosm of those. 
God takes the dust of the ground, fills it with the breath of heaven, and creates a living creature, right? Your body itself and the parts of you are again a microcosm of those areas that God has come and pronounced judgment upon and delivered. So if you're still with me, I want you to recognize that you have a body and you have some feet that take you in places. That represents these lower areas. You have a mind that is symbolic of the heavens. Uh, it is an idea or a possibility that hasn't yet been embodied. In order to do something in the world, you have to have a mind and a body come together and act to see something develop in the world. And at the center of all of that, directing all of that process is your heart. So you too have kind of three levels, three areas that constitute who you are. And to see how this might connect with us, I want to ask you if the Lord, let's imagine you're Egypt for a moment. If the Lord were to come and to meet you in your life personally and say, I want to demonstrate to you that I am the Lord. What are those things that your feet or your heart or your mind might be given to? John Calvin says our, our, our hearts are idol-making factories. Like we just produce them one after another. It's like a conveyor belt. Like we can't stop. We constantly need that deliverance. That's why I pray a prayer confession every week. And I see all of you always saying it too. So it's not like we just skipped a week and we're good. If God was to come to you and examine those three levels, what are the places where he would need to demonstrate his power? That he is the Lord and these other things are not. following that so here let's let's take those three areas let's look as symbolic of those lower regions like the sea or the muck in the mire where are those places where your feet take you where you end up um, like christian in bunyan's pilgrim's progress uh, cr the christian who ends up walking through the bogs and the muck and the mire, ends up in the pool of despondency, drawn down, kind of sucked down into sin. What are those places where your feet walk that then you just kind of keep tracking it all through the house and getting it on everyone else? What are those places? What are the places like the chaotic waters where you seek out with faith and in good intentions, but like Peter, find that your feet are now sinking into the depths that you were overcome, that you can't do that on your own. You need the Lord's hand and help. Where are those places where, like in Dante, in Dante's Inferno, it begins with Dante saying, um, I awoke in a dark wood and I had somewhere, somehow gotten lost off the path. Where have your feet trod that have led you off the path and now you're caught in a dark wood and you don't know how to make your way back? What are those places? How would God come to you? Isn't it beautiful that God describes the Scriptures, in the Scriptures, as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path? And of course, the Word that God gives has become incarnate. Jesus is the one who leads us, who is called the way. So through the Scriptures and through Christ, 
we are brought back to the way. Christ who is the light that shines in the darkness. Christ, the one who comes as we drown in the chaotic waters and takes us by the hand and pulls us up. Where do your feet go? And how might God redirect them? Or consider then the spirits of the air described as powers and principalities. These are spiritual beings that have some sway, some degree of impact or um, control over things like nations or cities or communities. Powers and principalities who want to detract, uh, to break down, to separate from God, to redirect the worship that is due Him and the focus that is due Him upon themselves. Where do you find your mind going over and over? What are the things that pull you away from the Lord rather than towards Him? How might Christ come and create a new spirit within you? All of these things, in all of these questions we might ask ourselves, um, the heart seems to be the key, doesn't it? Because at the core of this story is a man who continually hardens his heart. Though the Lord comes and seeks to redirect him, though the Lord comes and seeks to reveal his truth, he hardens his heart. He says no. He says no. He says no over and over again until eventually that heart becomes so hard. You know the rest of the story. The scriptures tell us that God comes. Paul describes it like this. When the spirit is given to us, is like our heart has been hard, um, but it, our heart becomes circumcised. It becomes that the hard part is removed, and our heart then becomes a heart of flesh rather than one of stone. That's what Christ comes to do. The, the scriptures say that God wants to write his law upon our hearts, not tablets of stone, which we'll get to soon enough. They sing about the perfect ten. God wants to write those on our hearts so they become a part of us. And that's what Jesus does for us as he comes to us and enters into our hearts through faith. As he sends the Spirit into our lives to breathe within us, to guide us and direct us in the way that we are to go. That's what God does for you and wants to do with you. But here's my last thought. Because you know, y'all aren't Egypt in this story. You aren't Pharaoh either. You are the children of Israel. You are the new Israel gathered up into Christ. You are God's family that God is setting free. We can learn from Egypt, absolutely. We can learn from the signs that God gives to them we're meant to. But that's not who you are. You are Israel. It is good news because the deliverer comes to you. Christ comes to set you free. You are, you are grafted in. You are called sons and daughters of the living God. That's your identity. And so along with that comes the fact that you are also meant yourselves to be deliverers. So ultimately, this story, though we can learn from the aspects of judgment within it, is meant to remind us of the freedom we have and know and experience in the Lord. It's a beautiful life that we get to live together, full of watermelon and frisbee contests and hot dogs and love and blessing and joy and children and generations. It's a beautiful life we get to live together as God's people. And the highlight of that moment is worship. 
That's why God sets us free. There's a lot in this book. Hope you can continue to enter into it in the days ahead. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.